Good morning. It's such a joy to be able to be here with you this morning to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And before we jump into this morning's message, what I want to do is I want to start by reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision. If you haven't heard of the Valley of Vision, I highly recommend it. It is a book with a collection of Puritan prayers. And so our prayer this morning is called Fullness in Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, thou hast taught me that Christ has all fullness and so all plentitude of the Spirit, that all fullness I lack in myself is in him. For his people, not for himself alone, he having perfect knowledge, grace, righteousness, to make me see, to make me righteous, to give me fullness, that is my duty, out of a sense of emptiness, to go to Christ, possess, enjoy his fullness as mine, as if I had it in myself, because it is for me in him, that when I do this, I am full of the spirit, as a fish that has got from the shore to the sea, and has all fullness of waters to move in, for when faith fills me, then I am full." That this is the way to be filled with the Spirit, like Stephen, first faith, then fullness. For this way makes me most empty, and so most fit for the Spirit to fill. Thou hast taught me that the finding of this treasure of all grace in the field of Christ begets strength, joy, glory, and renders all graces alive. Help me to delight more and more in what I receive from Christ, more in that fullness which is in him the fountain of all his glory. Let me not think to receive the spirit from him as a thing, apart from finding, drinking, being filled with him. To this end, O God, do thou establish me in Christ. Settle me. Give me a being there. Assure me with certainty that all this is mine. For this only will fill my heart with joy and peace. Amen. So over the next three to four weeks, we're going to climb this mountain in Colossians 1, verses 13 through 29. These verses are so rich and so packed with the glory of Christ that they, in essence, are going to kind of serve as their own little mini series that we're going to be calling the incomparable Christ. And so today we're going to look only at two verses, verses 13 and 14, and it will be the first message, the incomparable Christ, part one. There's enough truth, enough glory in these two verses to keep us on our faces for all eternity, worshiping Christ because he is worthy. And so, if you will, I highly suggest that you spend two, three days a week reading through the book of Colossians, really absorbing just the high Christology that Paul has here. Because I promise you, as we begin to climb this glorious mountain, the more time you spend in Colossians, the more glory you will behold when we gather corporately as God's people. So with that, let's, let's get started. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, the redeemed are dependent of God for all. All that we have, wisdom, the pardon of sin, deliverance, acceptance in God's favor, grace, holiness, true comfort and happiness, eternal life and glory, we have from God by a mediator. And this mediator is God. God not only gives us the mediator and accepts his mediation and of his power and grace bestows the things purchased by the mediator, but he is the mediator. 
Our blessings are what we have by purchase, and the purchase is made of God. The blessings are purchased of him. And not only so, but God is the purchaser. Yes, God is both the purchaser and the price. For Christ, who is God, purchased these blessings by offering himself as the price of our salvation. End quote. You see, Jonathan Edwards is rightly pointing out that followers of Christ are completely dependent on God for everything. And this dependence begins with our salvation. In this morning's message, what we're going to see is that because man is in bondage to his sin, he needs God to rescue and redeem him. He is dependent upon God for this. And so if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Like I said, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to specifically have our focus in verses 13 and 14. Let me read our verses this morning. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The first thing I want us to see this morning, our first point, is that it is Christ who rescues and relocates us. If you're a follower of Christ, then there was a time that you were a prisoner with no hope of escape. You did not possess the strength, resources, or even the desire to escape. You were going to live and die as a prisoner. Unless someone rescued you. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, then this is your reality. This is the lot you have. You are a prisoner in the domain of darkness. But a prisoner of who? A prisoner of where? Well, a prisoner of Satan, a prisoner of sin, a prisoner of the domain of darkness. This is what verse 13 is telling us. Look at it again. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. I want to be very clear. So let me repeat myself again. Every single disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ has been delivered, saved, rescued from a danger they cannot even imagine. If we all collectively put our imaginations together to try to, to really understand the danger that we find ourselves in this domain of darkness, we couldn't do it. And every single person who has not trusted in Christ lives in this darkness. But again, it tells us here that we've been rescued from it. This rescue that has taken place is not a rescue that's come about by peace negotiations. God didn't sit at a boardroom table with, with Satan and kind of strike a deal for our release. No, this is a rescue that has come about by the superior power of God. Notice it says here, rescue, domain, transfer, kingdom. This is warfare language. God has stormed into the domain and brought about rescue. That word rescue, it specifically carries the sense of being saved from harm. Specifically from harm from another person. It means to, to drop in and extract 
somebody out of danger. And so let's look here at this domain of darkness, because this is where we're rescued from. That word domain in some translations may be rendered uh, authority because that's what it means. This word here is, is talking about a ruling authority, a ruling power. The word darkness in scripture often is used to symbolize that which is marked by evil, that which is against God, that which is filled of sinfulness. Because darkness stands in direct opposition to the light. If you would, turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 19. In John 3, 19, we find these words. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. See, their deeds were evil because they're part of the darkness, because darkness is that evil domain, that evil authority. The darkness stands in opposition to the light. The light is the light of heaven, the light of Christ. If you were to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and in 2 Corinthians 6, look at verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And so the domain of darkness stands against the kingdom of light. Now, in this domain of darkness, we can drill down even with a little bit more specificity. And we're going to see that in this domain of darkness, this authority of darkness, this ruling power of darkness, we find Satan. The domain of darkness is under the rule of Satan. An instructive passage on this is found in the book of Acts. If you turn to Acts chapter 26, verse 18, you will find that it reads, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the domain of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. You see, this domain of darkness here in Acts 26 is linked to the domain of Satan. And the domain of darkness, which is the domain of Satan, stands in opposition to the domain of God. Now, because Satan rules there in this domain of darkness, we have to understand how he rules. One of the first things we see of how Satan rules this domain of darkness is that it's a domain that hates truth because Satan is an enemy of the truth. And so he wants to create a domain, an authority, a place that is governed by lies. In John chapter 8, verse 44, we read, Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth 
because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the domain of darkness where Satan is ruling is a place of lies. We also see that he rules here by tempting people to sin. We need to look no farther than Genesis chapter 3, when Satan, in the form of a serpent, slithers his way up to Eve and begins to ask a question. And that question is questioning if the word of God is true. And he tempts Eve to eat this fruit, and she does. And Eve then gives to Adam, and Adam eats along with her. And as a result, all of creation, all of humanity from that point forward has been catapulted into sin, into the domain of darkness. And if we were to turn to the book of Revelation, the last book in our Bible, we would see in chapter 12 that Satan, this serpent, seeks to lead the world astray as he governs in the domain of darkness. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. To deceive, to lead astray, to drift from what is true. This is how Satan rules in the domain of darkness. But this domain of darkness doesn't just apply to this rule, this authority of the evil one. It also refers to the, this evil age we live in, this culture we live in. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. That rescue that we're reading about in Colossians is being referenced here in Galatians. And it's a rescue from the world because as Satan governs in wickedness, this world that has been thrown into sin since Adam also is a place of wickedness. And, you know, there's so much beauty and so much goodness in the world. There's so much to enjoy and see of God. We see the image of God in people all around us. We see God's fingerprint in the beauties of creation. We, we feel things of God and beautiful music. But don't let all of that blind you to the fact that we live in an evil age. We live in a time where people call good evil and evil good, and that's only increasing in intensity, in strength, in magnitude. More and more, the world is growing darker and darker and darker, and there is less light. This world, because it's under the rule of Satan, who is the father of lies, who has been a murderer from the beginning, who is a deceiver, will begin to bear more and more fruit, showing who their father is. However, Hear me, when God, by his grace and for his glory, gives you a new heart, regenerates you, it's at that very moment that he has rescued you. 
That moment that he has given you a new heart, he swoops down into enemy territory. He grabs hold of you and he extracts you from this domain of darkness and you're free. Again, if you were to go back to Acts 26, 28, which we read a few moments ago, we would see that it was God who had to open the eyes. Because in that darkness, nobody could see. God had to do the work. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way. We are not able to do that. Acts 26, 28, listen to it. I'm sorry, not Acts 26, Acts 26, 18. Open, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. On our own, we would never have found our way out of the domain of darkness because we're blind. We're blind men and women living in a dark world apart from Christ. We fumble, we trip, we stumble, but we will never. And the more we think, the more we try to to get out of the domain of darkness and bring ourselves to the light on our own strength, by our own abilities, the deeper we go into the darkness, the further we go away from the light. So that's where we've been rescued from, from that domain of darkness. But we also have to understand what, what we've been rescued from. We've seen briefly that it is from the the power of sin and Satan. But I want to make sure that we really understand that if you were to go to Ephesians chapter two, verses one and three, we read, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That was us. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's who we were, but that's what we've been rescued from. We formally lived in the lust of our flesh. We formally indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We formally were children of wrath. But that is no longer the reality. That is no longer true of us because we've been rescued. We've been made free. And so I want you to hear this, church. Because of the rescue that has taken place, if you are a follower of Christ... That means sin and Satan can tempt, but they can never, no longer govern. You can be tempted, but Satan and Satan no longer has authority over you. There's no more governing power there at all. The Constitution of the domain of darkness doesn't apply to you because now you are under the constitution of the kingdom of light. You have been rescued. But not only have you been rescued from the power of sin and Satan, but you've also been rescued from the wrath to come, which I know sounds odd, but listen to what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven 
whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Church, there's a day of reckoning coming. One day Jesus is returning, he will crack the sky. And on that day when he returns, he will scoop up his bride, his people. But he will also pour out all of his holy wrath on all those who have not trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins. On that day when he brings his wrath, every wrong will be made right. Every act will be brought into judgment. And that is a beautiful thing because he is a good God who does that. But think about this. Had we not been rescued, that wrath would have been poured out on each one of us. Praise be to God that we've been rescued from that. And so we've seen we've been rescued from the domain of darkness. We've been rescued from, that's the place where we've been rescued from. What have we been rescued from? The power of sin, Satan, the wrath to come from Christ. But who have we been rescued by? Again, verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So he, his, this is talking about God, the father. It is God, the father who has rescued you. And he has done so through his glorious son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know we typically talk about Jesus being the one who rescues, and that is true. But we have to understand the way the Trinity works. We have to understand that it's the Father who plans, the Son who executes, and the Spirit who applies. And so here we see that the Father is the source of our salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, we see here that the Father planned our great salvation. Let me read them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. The Father chose you and I before the foundations of the world. He, before time began, looked down and said, I will rescue them as a people for myself. The Father has predetermined our election into his family. The Father regenerated, set forth our, regener our regeneration. The Father had planned for us to come to repentance. The Father had planned for our justification. The Father had planned our adoption. The Father has done all this through Christ. And so Paul rightly states here that you and I, as followers of Jesus, have been rescued by God the Father. And so we've seen here our rescue from the domain from the power of Satan, from the wrath to come. Our rescue has been by the Father. But notice here, he goes on in verse 13, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That word transferred is important. It means to move from one place to another. You could say the word, you could use the word transplanted, relocated. You and I have been given a new address 
and a new zip code. You and I have new citizenship papers. This world is no longer our home. The value and ethics of the world are no longer our values and ethics. As it stands, you and I are aliens in this world. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness. Notice it says we've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom. Now that word kingdom is very clear, right? It's a place where people live who are ruled by a king. And you and I are ruled by King Jesus. Period. Full stop. Jesus and Jesus alone is King of King and Lord of Lords. The King of the kingdom is Jesus. And Jesus is referred to here as the beloved son. As the beloved son. A beautiful description that the father has. And if we were to look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, we would read, about the baptism of Jesus. And it says, and behold, a voice out of the heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God, the father loves his son with a perfect infinite joy. And yet this son, this pure and perfect son this son that the father loves with a love we could never imagine sends him to die for those that are prisoners of the darkness. You really need to let that sink in. I could not imagine ever sending any of my children to die for those in darkness. And not only would I cannot imagine sending them, but remember Jesus on the cross, propitiated, satisfied the wrath of God, God's wrath against sin. So not only did he send his son to die, he poured all of his holy wrath on the son for those in darkness. And yet it is his beloved son. Amazing love. How can it be, right? Brothers and sisters, this darkness, this domain of darkness is completely opposite to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. The kingdom of Christ is the kingdom of light, and it couldn't be more different than domain of darkness ruled by Satan. You know, Paul doesn't use the word kingdom often. But here, the kingdom of his beloved son, it's the same kingdom that Jesus talks about in the Gospels as the kingdom of God. It is the rule and reign of King Jesus over and through his people forever. You know, right now, recently, we've seen the crisis in Afghanistan. 
And a great rescue operation was taking place to bring Afghanistan, Afghanis out of there to rescue them from the domain of darkness called the Taliban. But we brought all those people out of there, but there's a second part to that rescue operation that people don't seem to think of often, but it's taking place right now. And that's the relocation effort because we simply can't extract these people out of Afghanistan. They have to go somewhere and they have to go somewhere that's safe, secure. To rescue and not relocate would be to leave them as orphans. And this is exactly what the father has done. He has rescued us. And then he relocates us into the kingdom of his son. It's beautiful. So let me encourage you with this application about through this point. You do not need to be rescued as a follower of Christ. You already have been rescued. Instead, what you need to do is you need to live like somebody who's already been rescued. You see, so often we make the mistake of living as someone who's still a captive rather than living as someone who's been set free, who's been rescued. In Romans chapter 6, verse 7, Paul writes, For he who has died is freed from sin. You have been rescued if you are in Christ. So live as someone who's been rescued. Live as someone who's no longer over the governing power, tyranny of sin and Satan. And because we've been rescued, we know that he will continue to stand by our side in moments where we're feeling the pull to go back. This brings us to our second point this morning. The Christ who gives redemption and remission of sin. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what does this word redemption mean, right? It's a loaded word with, with biblical meaning. Redemption means to be set free. To pay a ransom, to be set free by payment. You see, in Paul's day, during the Greco-Roman culture, slavery was a part of that. It was different than slavery as we think of uh, that happened here in America, but it was there. Um, and that, that we can unpack that at a later point. The point would be that people back then, though, would have heard the word redemption and understood what it meant. Clearly, they would have known that the only way to, to no longer be a slave was be to somebody to pay the price for your freedom. Because that's exactly what this redemption, what it was paid for. Christ was our redemption so that we could be free, free from sin, free from slavery to sin, free from Satan. The shackles of sin have been broken. Again, I, I, I just we need to keep repeating this truth because we so quickly forget it. Sin and Satan no longer have any power over us. Why? Because we've been rescued from the domain of darkness, but also because we've been redeemed. We've been purchased. You're free. But this freedom came at a great cost. This freedom, this redemption actually came at the greatest cost possible. It came at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 26, 
verse 28, we would find this moment here where Jesus is sitting with the disciples at the Last Supper. And he says this in verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And they have Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You need to let that reality sink in. It should feel heavy because it is. God, the son took upon flesh, became truly God and truly man, and then died. Died for you. Died for me. That death was the price of our redemption. Christ is our redemption. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Church, as Jesus hung on that cross, as Jesus died in sin, Jesus died to sin, and Jesus died for sin. That redemption was a transaction, and two things took place in that transaction. We've been looking at the first, which is being freed from slavery to sin and from the power of Satan. But the second one is that as you were purchased out of bondage to sin and Satan, you were purchased to be slaves of Christ. First Corinthians chapter six, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In your body. This redemption that freed us is also the redemption that has enslaved us to Christ. But unlike Satan, who rules by authority in the domain of darkness, Jesus is a king who rules in the kingdom of light, a place of moral purity, of truth, of goodness, of grace. I cannot think of anywhere I'd rather be in under anyone, I, anyone I'd rather be under. We have this infatuation with personal autonomy, but Brothers and sisters, when I look in the mirror and I see that person, I recognize just how quickly I plunge myself back into the darkness. And so praise be to God that he has laid hold of me, that he has bought me with a price, that he has made me his, that he is my master, that I am his slave, and that he rules and reigns over my life in grace, goodness, truth, and righteousness. This redemption, this glorious redemption, we will be singing about for all eternity. This glorious redemption is the great song of heaven. We see that it is the great song of heaven in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. 
And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Purchased is the song of heaven. And this great redemption, this great purchase has produced what? The forgiveness of sins we see here. Now, there's certain words like forgiveness that we use all the time, but we've actually lost what it really means. We think forgiveness means, you know what? I forgot about that thing you did wrong. We're good. But the word forgiveness here actually means a cancellation of a debt, the remission of a penalty, a pardon. You see, sin has made you and I debtors. We see it in the Lord's Prayer. As debtors, we have broken the law of God, and therefore we've incurred a legal debt. Just as there's a punishment, a debt to be paid when we break the law here in this world, there is a debt, a punishment due for breaking the law of God. Now, I wanted to find sin properly here. So often we say that sin means missing the mark, and that's true. But, you know, that kind of, for some people, that can mean like, well, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to hit God's target, but I'm just missing a little bit. And that's not the case at all. Apart from the Spirit of God in us, because we have put our faith in Christ, we are hell-bent to pursue wickedness. So we don't fire at the mark. We don't draw our arrow and try to hit the mark and miss. We don't shoot at God's target at all. We want nothing to do with it. We don't even pull the arrow out and try to shoot. And so let me offer this unpacking of what sin can mean. The Baptist Catechism has a great definition of sin. It says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Or the way we say it in my, in my son's catechism, sin is any breaking of God's rule or word. What does that mean? It means that anything that you think, say, do, or desire that breaks a command from God's word comes from a heart of unbelief or is not done for the glory of God is sin. Let me repeat this. Sin is anything that you think say, do, or desire that breaks a commandment of scripture, comes from a heart of unbelief, or is not done for the glory of God. And the reality is there has never been a moment in my life or years that we have perfectly thought, said, done, or desired something. Everything we've thought, said, done, or desired has been tainted with sin. And so this forgiveness of sin that Paul is putting here in verse, talking about here in verse 14, is a forgiveness that covers the totality of our being. It is a forgiveness that covers everything we have thought, said, done, or desired since the moment we were born. We tend to think of big sins and small sins, serious sins and not so serious sins. But every sin is wicked in the eyes of God. Every sin deserves eternal separation from God. Every sin has put us in debt to God. And you and I, even on our best day, couldn't pay off the smallest sin we've committed before a holy God because you and I are morally 
bankrupt. If righteousness was our currency, we don't have a penny to our name. Not one. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says, having canceled out the certificate of debt, our legal debt to God has been canceled out through the death of Christ. Our certificate of debt was nailed to the cross and it says paid in full because it was paid in blood. And so you and I no longer owe anything to God. Our debt has been canceled. We have received the remission of sins. We are forgiven. The forgiveness of sin from God, that's our greatest need. That's man's greatest need. That will always be man's greatest need, but it is a need that God has met, and it is something God offers to all who will confess their sin, repent of their sin, and trust on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. In the context that Paul's writing here to the church in Colossae, this would fly in the face of all the false teachers because they were, say, they were teaching that in, in order to be truly forgiven, to be truly accepted by God, it would require more than the rescue, relocation, redemption, and remission that God is offering through Christ. And in so saying that, and in so teaching that, these false teachers were undermining the power and sufficiency of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. These false teachers were not understanding that those who are prisoners of the domain of darkness, slaves to sin and Satan, and in need of forgiveness, have no ability to free themselves. It only comes one way. It's a one-way street. The Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask each of you here this morning, if you've received the forgiveness of sins that is offered in Christ, because this forgiveness only comes through him. There is no other way. God's word tells us in Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins, but it's only through him. So I want to offer some encouragements here as we close. Because you have been rescued by God, relocated by God, redeemed by God, and received the remissions of sins by God, remember this. Your sin no longer defines you. Your sin no longer defies you. Micah chapter 7 verse 19 He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. It no longer defies you. God has taken all that sin and plunged it to the very depths of the earth in the ocean. For it never to come up again. Your sin no longer defines you because you are a new creation as well. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17 says this. 
false. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That old you sin nature is gone. You are now new in Christ. Your sin also no longer separates you from God and never can. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. An amazing promise. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Your sin no longer rules over you, though. That's another one. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. No power, no authority, no longer a master. Your sin no longer condemns you. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There, again, the certificate of debt has been canceled. And the last thing I want you to remember, that because you've been forgiven, your sin has been completely removed. Completely removed. Psalm 103, verse 12. If you have a Bible, underline that one, highlight that one. It reads, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Have you ever stopped to think how far the east is from the west? It's infinite. You can never go east enough that you go west. You can never go west enough that you go east. They're infinitely apart. He has infinitely removed our transgression from us. And so I pray that the magnitude of this great passage will never become old news to you. I pray that with each passing day, you are more and more humbled by it and see how undeserving you are of it. A great and holy God has rescued me, has rescued you from the domain of darkness. He's relocated us to the kingdom of Christ. He's redeemed us from sin and from the sin and Satan. He's given us remission of sins. How do we res- how in the world could we respond to all this? Think two ways. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You see, forgiven people are forgiving people. We all have people in our life who have hurt us, who have betrayed us, who have abandoned us, and who have let us down. People who have not lived up to what we had hoped that they would be, or even perhaps to what they should be. And we hold it against them. We create this system where they've incurred a debt. But more often than not, they're never able to pay it off because it's never enough. And so... Where God is a God of grace and mercy, we give no grace and mercy. And those relationships then can never be rescued and redeemed. 
because we haven't forgiven. But forgiven people are forgiving people. Secondly, in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. We've not been forgiven little, church. We've been forgiven beyond what our minds could ever comprehend. And so we should love beyond what our minds could ever comprehend. See, forgiving is only one side of the coin. If we, coin. if we truly forgive someone, then we also love them. You see, we're commanded to love. First and foremost, we're commanded to love other Christians, other believers, other followers of Jesus. First John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we love the people of God. We're also commanded to love our neighbors. We see this in Mark chapter 12. Verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. But I know there's difficult people in the world. There's people that aren't believers. There's people that maybe we don't view as our neighbor for some reason. Well, God commanded us in Matthew chapter five, the word of God says that we are to love our enemies. Listen to verse chapter five, verses 43 through 48. You have heard it said, you shall love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only our brothers, your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you ought to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We are commanded to love the people of God. We're commanded to love neighbors and we're commanded to love our enemies. And so as men and women who have been forgiven by God and are loved by God, let us go forward and be forgiving people and loving people as well so that we can imitate God. Dear church, You have been rescued. You've been relocated. You've been redeemed. And you've received the remission of sin. Let that sink in. Let that grab hold of your heart. And then go out into the world and live it out. Be forgiven, loving people. Because he who has been forgiven much loves much. Let's pray.